Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible has the best audiobook performances, the largest library, and the most exclusive content curated by and for Canadians. When you start your 30-day trial, your first Audible book is free. Learn more at audible.ca slash Canada. That's audible.ca slash C-A-N-A-D-A. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by The Big Story. This election will be nasty and messy and ridiculous and brutish and unpleasant and mean. And honestly, you can just throw the thesaurus at this whole thing because all the words apply. But we know two things will matter geography and policy. In the weeks leading up to the vote, the Big Story podcast will be going in-depth with the reporters from every province and territory to figure out what matters to their regions and how it will impact the results. And as we get set to head to the polls, host Jordan Heath-Rollins will sit down with policy experts to break down where each party stands on the issues that matter most. If you want to listen to how and where this election will be won, listen to The Big Story wherever you get your podcasts or at thebigstory.ca. I can vouch for this being good. I occasionally go on it. And I also listen to it. From Canada land, this is Oppo. I'm Justin Ling, and I'm in Montreal once again this week, just furiously combing through old yearbooks. This week on the show, Oppo goes west and east. Because this week, we're breaking the Laurentian consensus and taking you to the left and right coasts to figure out what the mood is like on the edge. To help us understand what's what in British Columbia, we've got the stars Melanie Green in Vancouver to talk to us about the environment, how no one can afford to buy a home, and what the vibe is like in the Pacific time zone. And we head out to Newfoundland and Labrador to talk to the independence Drew Brown about the scuttlebutt in St. John's, where a multi-billion dollar energy project still looms large over the vote. But first, just a recap of this week from hell once again. If you thought a mere racism scandal was enough to bring down the Prime Minister, how wrong you were. Justin Trudeau's numbers, after taking a bit of a dip, have improved back to where they were, even after a blackface scandal threatened to knock his campaign off kilter. Just this past weekend, the full video emerged of Justin Trudeau sporting blackface at some whitewater rafting retreat, and if you put aside all the really disgusting racism in the video, the soundtrack for the clip has totally ruined one of my favorite songs. Elizabeth May, facing heat for having a reusable cup photoshopped into one of her campaign photos, arrived in Montreal to try to win over Quebecers with her environmentalist pitch. Unfortunately, it didn't go terribly well. Her plan to ban oil imports into Canada was met with an awful lot of confusion, leaving the province to wonder if they'd be forced to buy Alberta crude. Meanwhile, May plans to keep hydroelectric power in Canada by pushing Hydro-Quebec to sell energy to Ontario, who famously doesn't want it. It left journalists befuddled and wondering whether the Green leader really understands Quebec at all. Meanwhile, May says she has little interest in forming government with any of her rivals. I don't want a cabinet post in somebody else's government. I want to make sure they do the right thing. A little plug for my own work here, I spent a big chunk of last week trying to pin down Justin Trudeau and Andrew Scheer on their policies around the opioid crisis. Despite the valiant efforts of some journalists out there, the issue has been close to invisible on the campaign trail, even though more than a thousand people died of overdoses in just the first three months of this year. 
Andrew Shear had taken the stance, supported by absolutely nobody who works in the field, that Justin Trudeau's harm reduction policies have been a disaster, and he has little interest in trying anything new or more expansive on that file. Why are you saying that the research and 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 those who are familiar with this um, should not be trusted here? Well, listen to what I just said. I said that uh, communities who are impacted by these types of decisions should have a greater role in having their concerns addressed. I've said that the focus of government should be helping people get off of dangerous drugs uh, and uh, and that decriminalization of drugs uh, is a bad idea. Those are the things I've actually said and will be... I think I'm officially off Andrew Shear's Christmas card list. A day later, I got to ask Trudeau about his own decision to ignore the research on the issue and stick with a criminal approach to drug policy. Fans of the show will remember that former Health Minister Jane Philpott told us a few months back that the Prime Minister isn't keen on drug decriminalization because it doesn't poll very well. You're saying you believe in science. Why aren't you listening to the researchers who are producing the science? We are continuing uh, to base our decisions on science. We're continuing to increase supervised consumption and harm reduction. We are continuing to increase the uh, measure around supply that are making a, a very real difference. The other parties are a bit more enlightened on the issue. Both the Greens and the NDP, with some caveats, are in favor of ending the criminalization of drugs. Also this week, it was the climate strike. Most of the major party leaders attended some form of a march in support of, you know, saving the planet. The only obvious no-show was conservative leader Andrew Scheer. He did dispatch some MPs to attend the march, but he was instead in Vancouver making a truly befuddling announcement about a new tunnel for Vancouver. During the press conference, he made this rather bizarre pronouncement. So these types of upgrades to help increase the capacity not only means that people get to and from work quicker, more time at home to spend with their families, but also less time in their cars, meaning lower emissions as well. Of course, research shows that no, building bigger roads does not reduce CO2 emissions. More roads means more cars means more emissions. Quit your bullshit. Jugmeet Singh was in British Columbia as well, but he had the decency to go to the Vancouver Climate Rally. The big event, though, was in Montreal. With some 500,000 people taking to the streets, it's believed to have been the biggest march in the world, and it featured Swedish environmentalist wonder kid Greta Thunberg. Both Elizabeth May and Justin Trudeau were in town for the rally. The Prime Minister, though, got to use his title to sit down with a teenager for a one-on-one chat. She is the voice of a generation. Thunberg, though, was slightly less impressed with Trudeau than he was with her. And he's, of course, obviously not doing enough. Trudeau took the opportunity on Friday morning to announce some new climate policies. So what we're going to do is plant two billion trees over the next decade. It's a bit of a limp plan from a leader who was standing at a podium which read, Choose Climate Action. It obviously goes without saying that trees are remarkable. And there is a lot of research to suggest that, yes, they can help suck CO2 from the atmosphere. And research has pointed to huge reforestation programs as being necessary in the fight against climate change. However, other research has thrown some cold water on that, suggesting the impacts may be less than expected. And that regardless, trees won't save us if we don't significantly reduce our carbon output. To that end, the Liberal plan still hasn't laid out how it would even get to the modest Paris targets by 2030. According to the Parliamentary Budget Officer, Canada's plans would miss those international targets by about 80 megatons of CO2. Trudeau, though, is somehow pledging to get to carbon neutrality by 2050. Of course, if you don't like Trudeau's plan, well, your options might be a little bit limited. 
Andrew Scheer's plan, of course, would get rid of the carbon tax and replace it with some weaker, badder version of the carbon tax. His plan would not get Canada anywhere close to the Paris targets and would probably see an increase in emissions by 2030. If you're going to the other parties, the NDP say they will hit those Paris targets and they'll expand a suite of environmental initiatives. The Green Party is pledging to not only hit the Paris targets, but to get to carbon neutrality by 2050. And they actually have a plan. They say they will get us there. After his announcement, Trudeau took to the streets to join the climate protesters. Many had a grand old time mocking his decision to buy a pipeline. One protester even tried to hurl an egg at the liberal leader. The liberals rolled on to Sunday when they finally unveiled their platform, and they've taken some heat for it. The whole thing is not going to be costed by the parliamentary budget officer like many of the other parties are doing. The campaign document has some interesting things. There's a 3% advertising and data tax on internet giants, $3 billion a year for public transit, full adoption of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, a special prosecutor for terrorism cases, a pledge to end the blood ban against gay men, which, okay, they also pledged to do four years ago and didn't do it, so honestly eat me. But given all those big promises, they haven't really figured out how to pay for it. The Liberals are looking at a $27 billion deficit for 2020, which is pretty fucking big. And finally, I'd like to give a quick shout out to Andrew Scheer, who has formally refused to come on Oppo for an interview. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible has the best audiobook performances, the largest library, and the most exclusive content curated by and for Canadians. On Audible, you can find titles like one of my absolute favorite books. It's called The Fish That Ate the Whale, The Life and Times of America's Banana King. It was written by Rich Cohen, and it's narrated by Robertson Dean. Now, this book has everything. It's a story of how the banana became a staple food for North America. It's a story of the CIA, of colonialism, of agriculture. It, it is a story of epic proportions that I knew nothing about before picking up this book, but it is so good. And because it's on Audible, you can guarantee it's going to be engaging, and you're going to be transported to another decade, to another country, to the banana fields of Latin America, even as you're sitting in traffic. Start your 30-day free trial, and your first Audible book is free. Learn more at audible.ca slash Canada. That's audible.ca slash C-A-N-A-D-A. While British Columbia has basically been billed as Canada's battleground province, the East Coast has been seen as, as a pretty boring spot this time around. Justin Trudeau famously picked up every seat in Newfoundland and Labrador and in every province on the East Coast, but this time around, things might look a little bit different. If you're following the polls, yes, Justin Trudeau is doing very well, but there are real pertinent concerns on the East Coast, particularly Newfoundland and Labrador. To help us figure out exactly what's driving the anxiety, I've invited on Drew Brown. He's the editor for The Independent and a political columnist for Vice Canada. Drew, thanks for coming on. No problem. What are you at? <laughs> I'm doing all right. Now, if you were to believe the opinion polls about the most important issue that we don't have Newfoundland Labrador specific numbers, we do have Atlantic Canadian numbers. Um, but Atlantic Canada is standing behind that old bulwark of worrying about health care. Health care is apparently the most important issue for the plurality of voters in the East Coast. Is that true? What are the anxieties for, for voters out there that, that, that you're picking up on? 
I mean, I think healthcare is definitely top of the list in terms of the sort of bread and butter political issues here. I mean, we have an aging population. Newfoundland Labrador is sort of staring down this demographic crisis. I think. Oh, that's a very nice way of putting it. I think. I think staring down oblivion is probably a, a, a uh, more accurate way yeah, of phrasing it. I mean, that's that's definitely sort of the the mood here these days. Um, I think StatScan had that projection of uh, Canadian population change by 2043. Uh, I think our average age is going to be like pushing 60. It's going to be great. You'll be very very carbon neutral when everyone's dead though i think the government's plan is also to double offshore oil production oh, in the okay, next well. 10 years so we actually might be even worse off but hey well, let's start with that though because I, I mean you know healthcare is the is this huge pressing concern that i i think just is not being picked up elsewhere in the country because you know other parts of the country have a you know a less old demographic they have you know more immigration they have you know a higher birth rate in some cases uh, and mm-hmm. they're not facing the sort of budget crunch that newfoundland and labrador is and to a different degree the other atlantic provinces is that anxiety not really being picked up on the on the national stage? I mean, my honest impression is that this election, it really just sort of seems like it's happening on mainland Canada and it's kind of about things that are happening in mainland Canada and we're just kind of here along for the ride. So it doesn't really seem like the issues facing Atlantic Canada broadly and Newfoundland and Labrador in specific are really getting much traction in this battle for tax credits and camping subsidies and stuff or whatever this election's about because famously you know this this health crunch is on top of a thousand other things it really is pushing newfoundland and labrador to the brink of financial you know wilderness i mean there, there's a real threat that newfoundland doesn't have the money to pay for the things it has to do going forward you know 10 20 years from now um how acute is that problem um, it's actually even more acute than you suggest uh, just now. In that, um, <laughs> sorry so, for downplaying it. Oh man, yeah, no, it's actually it's actually way worse. It's it's great. So the Muskrat Falls project, which the rest of Canada has lived in blissful ignorance of, mostly is about to come online. I think at the end of this year, early next year. Anyway, when it was first sanctioned in 2012, it was supposed to be a 6.7 billion dollar hydro facility in Labrador, 800 megawatts of power. It's going to be great. We're all going to love it. Wait, let me guess. It came on on time and on budget, right? Sort of. Um, <laughs> in that the final cost is going to be in the ballpark of $13 billion, and it's about five years late, and we just wrapped up a public inquiry into how the hell did this happen. Is there a Cole Notes version of what the hell happened? Uh, basically, a crown corporation had the culture of a private company and did whatever it wanted, and none of the politicians in charge wanted to ask any uncomfortable questions about, like, is this actually going to work, and how's it going, and so now we're stuck with the bill. So, <laughs> this thing comes online soon, and because it's so expensive, um, and because we're forced to pay for all the power that it generates, electricity rates, without any sort of, like, intervention by a large state actor, are slated to sort of very quickly double, possibly even triple within the next decade or so, which is really bad for a province where I think less than 50% of us make $36,000 a year, and large heating bills are not great for the household budget. So that's sort of like the big thing. Um, we just had a provincial election around it earlier this year, but the other problem here is that like much like federally, even if you don't like the guys in charge, there aren't really any other alternatives. So using this to their full advantage, the provincial government campaign on a, a rate mitigation plan, where basically they're going to come up with an extra $725 million a year to keep rates low. So they've got about 525 million of that 
a year figured out and they're sort of holding out for like an extra 200 billion dollars a year of federal mystery money federal mystery machine should be like the official trudeau campaign bus yeah so basically the provincial government has been saying that the feds are going to come help us to the tune of about 200 million dollars a year i guess so trudeau has been here twice i think since that election once since the writ was dropped uh, he took one question about this and basically said, yeah, we're working on it, which is vague and non-committal enough for me to actually start worrying about that $200 million a year. And Sheer was down here for an hour. He visited a campaign headquarters <laughs> right next to the airport and then like immediately turned around and left again. And his answer was basically the same. You know, we'll work on it. Jugmeet's been here a couple times. I don't know if he's really given an answer about it. I don't expect that the NDP would offer anything other than, hey, yeah, this sounds bad. We'll totally work on it. The big question on the minds of like everybody in the province is like, how are we going to pay our electricity bills this winter? And we don't know. And the federal government isn't telling us. The provincial government also is, I guess, in the same boat as us, wondering what the hell is going to happen it's great you know this is also kind of on on the the back on which we're hoping to significantly reduce uh, canada's co2 output especially on the east coast because a big part of the plan was you know you're going to run all these cables um you know from labrador power all of these coasts you know because people didn't realize this but most of the east coast people heat their homes with home heating oil which is incredibly bad for the environment and you know maintains the east coast's obscene addiction on on oil especially foreign oil this was supposed to be you know the shining city on a hill so in, in light of all of this, what's a federal government to do? You know, I mean, when all of this sort of goes tits up, like, you know, what is Ottawa's job here? Right. So basically, like, Ottawa's role is involved in this in that, like, they guaranteed the loans that um, we took out to build this. So they're sort of involved in, like, the financial uh, end of things. We can thank Stephen Harper for this, who needed it for some votes in Labrador once upon a time. People have been asking, like, so you're just expecting the the feds to bail us out? And the provincial government said, well, like, not necessarily bail out. Like, they don't necessarily have to give us the $200 million, but I think they're sort of looking for some kind of, like, refinancing arrangement. Like, I think the plan is basically to just, like, remortgage Muskrat Falls in a way that, like, won't destroy us utterly immediately, but sort of, like, maybe spread the pain out a little bit more over a few more decades. Nobody really knows what's happening because, like, details have been so scant from everybody involved. At this point, it sort of seems like the ball is in the federal government's court. It's kind of like, how willing would they be to let the province, like, implode? It it sounds a bit insane to say, but it it, it is within the realm of possibility that Newfoundland and Labrador doesn't entirely go bankrupt, but that your finances implode in such a way that could spark a a real national problem i mean yeah the window of like us taking control of how the province works is closing very rapidly and it's very soon to be handed over to creditors or the federal government barring some kind of like actual intervention um and it is worth noting that ottawa just in in the past several months uh, before the election actually began handed over you know what to 2.5 billion dollars to newfoundland and labrador you know over the next like 40 years it's not a huge amount of money it's it's over the next like 40 years but yeah they're they're giving us the returns from the equity stake in the hibernia oil field yeah, and then, and then I think in the last eight years, we also have to pay some of it back. So, like, anyways, <laughs> don't look too closely at the deal. It's the $2.5 billion with an asterisk, and it's fine. Earlier on, you mentioned offshore oil. You know, obviously, there's there's been plenty of attention paid to environmental activists suggesting we need to leave the oil in the ground in Alberta, and everyone's mm-hmm. kind of forgotten that Newfoundland still has a bit of oil left. 
Uh, yeah, we actually, um, to hear the Minister of Natural Resources here tell it, we've actually got quite a lot of oil somewhere in the vicinity of like 49 billion barrels in the small percentage of the offshore that's been explored. Uh, so, I mean, there's more than enough oil here to fry the planet several times over, and as far as the provincial <laughs> government's concerned, they're going to go and get all of it, because why not? Repeatedly, every time these sort of financial questions come up, like, what are we going to do? How's this going to happen? The government's response has just been like, we're going to pump more oil, it's going to be fine. Um, and then every time someone mentions, like, what about the climate crisis, they'll all just kind of shrug and be like, well, you know, our oil is cleaner than other oil, so people got to use oil, they should use ours. <laughs> And that's that. And, and this strikes me as, as part of the problem. I mean, when you when you have provinces or governments who you can't afford to run things properly suddenly realize they're sitting on a bunch of oil, of course they're going to drill it. I mean, it, this has to be part of a, a climate strategy is incentivizing governments who can drill not to drill. The Liberal platform, which, which was just released, I looked through it at Control F for Newfoundland and Labrador. There is there is one mention of, of your province in here, and uh, I want to read it to you because I'm genuinely curious. It says, uh, we will begin right away by supporting projects like the Newfoundland-Labrador Fixed Transportation Link, which will give people living on the island of Newfoundland a permanent and secure way to travel to and from mainland Canada while helping to make things like food and household goods more affordable. Really? Drew, are they going to build a bridge? <laughs> it's not a bridge, it's a tunnel, actually. Uh, allegedly. Wait, no, you're, fucking, you're fucking kidding me. I am not kidding you. I'm 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 as surprised as you are that this is what made the Liberal platform and not any other thing. Sorry, the, the Liberal Party of Canada is committing to a tunnel to Newfoundland? I mean, that's what it sounds like they've been doing studies, like feasibility studies on a tunnel. I don't care if that's true or not. I'm reporting that. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's... Yeah, oh, man. Wow. That's cool. Oh, God. It actually it, it actually is. I, I had to look this up. It is, it is genuinely... Oh, my God. It's, it's a rail corridor between Newfoundland and Labrador. Underwater. Yep. Cool. Yeah. I mean, that sounds awesome, right? But I can't believe the tunnel made the federal platform. That's like... Is this, is this a real thing? Are people actually talking about, like, a, a tunnel to Labrador? Like, So, like, a couple sort of, like, bigwig liberals have floated this idea for various years as, like, hey, we should do this thing. You know, it'd be nice to be able to not have to rely on the ferries. And it's like, yeah, that sounds great. We'll do some feasibility studies. The government's done a couple feasibility studies. They've always come back, like, we need more feasibility studies. Feasibility studies will continue until the project is actually feasible. Well, that's how things work here. That's how we got Muskrat Falls. Um, <laughs> just keep commissioning consultant reports until they tell you what you want to hear. I'm fascinated by a liberal party that commits to connecting Newfoundland to the rest of Canada. I mean, like, I think it works in that, like, maybe we can leverage this into, like, getting them to bring back the train. Like, I really want the Newfoundland Railway back. That seems like a great use of all this excess electricity, a great way to decarbonize transportation. Plus, like, trains are just awesome. Okay, so, so putting Newfoundland's dire economic situation aside, I'm kind of curious to know how the other leaders are, are polling. Obviously, the Liberal Party swept all of Atlantic Canada the last election, which was pretty unprecedented. Mm. Um, you know, this time around, it, it, their poll numbers are, are, are good, but not, not quite as good as last time. What's the feeling like uh, on, on Trudeau and, and the other leaders? I mean, it's sort of like, we have a liberal government here. I think the general sense is that, like, we should send a liberal government back to Ottawa. So then, you know, the pipeline of help will remain intact. I, I like to call it the Atlantic Canada culture of repeat. That's a good, that's a good PC <laughs> euphemism for that. So there's basically that. 
I mean, it's like also the conservatives still have not really recovered from the like anti Harper sentiment here, and obviously like Sheer is not necessarily the most charismatic person to maybe overcome that gap. No. Um, the NDP, I think the NDP is a full slate now, but uh, they didn't until very recently, and you know, like some of them may or may not be paper candidates. The Green Party is basically non-existent because everybody associates them with the anti-seal hunt position, and you can't be anti-seal hunt in this province. It's it's a mortal sin. So even though I think all the local candidates are like pro seal hunt, uh, yeah, I don't think it'll bode well for them. Because the Greens are pulling, you know, extraordinarily well. I think it's mostly in PEI New Brunswick. Yeah, it's, uh, it's course, like we don't we, we never get provincial breakdowns anymore. We get Atlantic Canadian numbers. Yeah, I mean the last sort of like local specific poll that I saw for this province of the Greens at like three percent, which to me seems about right. It's really sort of like there are a couple races where. You know, there might be a two-way race between liberals and conservatives. I think it's mostly liberal leading in all ridings, except possibly St. John's East, where Jack Harris is challenging for re-election. He, of course, is the longtime NDP MP. The for a while, the only NDP MP in the uh, in the province. Yeah, yeah. Who was like surprise unseated in the red wave in 2015? I would be shocked, honestly, if we did anything other than return the other six liberal MPs. I don't know if it's necessarily like Trudeau himself personally. Uh, I think I think here it doesn't even really necessarily matter. It's more about who is on the government side um, at this particular moment in time. And I think there's a sense that like if the conservatives get a government, it will not be a super Newfoundland Labrador friendly government. But I would wonder if any of them, even the current liberal government is super friendly to us, but a lot of federal infrastructure cash has come here in the last four years. So credit where it's due. All right. Drew, thank you so much for coming on. This has been uh, helpful. I'm, I hope it was uh, heartwarming and uplifting. <laughs> it was uh, not. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's it. What are you going to do? This episode of Oppo is also brought to you by HelloFresh. HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy even after you've had a long day of following the federal party leaders around and you do not want to make anything complicated. And I can tell you, on an election campaign, actually planning what you're going to eat is a very sad affair. It means eating out a lot or just really putting like cheese on toast. I've eaten some very, very sad election meals. HelloFresh takes care of meal planning for you so you'll never need to worry about what's for dinner hellofresh has a lot of simple meals that are also delicious you can basically be on autopilot and still cook them very easily i've used hellofresh and i actually really like it hellofresh has a delicious tex-mex cheese stuffed burger with tomato salsa and potato wedges it is the perfect comfort food after a very very long day all of their meal plans are totally suited to your lifestyle and preferences and one of the best things is your subscription is flexible all the ingredients are fresh and they're pre-measured which means they're not going to be a lot of waste but one of the things i hate is throwing out vegetables like i'm sorry bok choy you weren't that good i can't eat that many of you for 50 percent off your first box of hellofresh go to hellofresh.ca slash oppo 50 and enter oppo 50 again go to hellofresh.ca slash oppo 50 and enter oppo 50 for 50 percent off your first box
Now, if you're following this election, you know that British Columbia is an absolute mess in the polls. It is basically a four-way split between the Greens, NDP, Conservatives, and Liberals, and there's really no telling where things are going to go. To help us break down what's going on on the West Coast, I've invited on Melanie Green, reporter for Star Vancouver. Melanie, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I think when it comes to elections, people look at BC with a little bit of confusion. I'm not sure we always totally understand what the dynamics at play there are. It feels like a bit of a wild west. I mean, so do you, do you think that BC is, is super different from the rest of the country when it comes to you know its, its politics? Yeah, I think particularly now there's this whole sense of Western alienation. But generally, British Columbians subscribe to this idea that once Ontario votes, you know, it's all over. And I think there is this longstanding frustration that... Um, that BC's left behind. But what's interesting is that we're sort of shedding that, particularly in this election. This province has kind of become a microcosm of the biggest values debates in the country, you know, whether that's housing affordability or pipelines versus sustainable climate action or addressing the opioid crisis or inequality. And so I think BC becomes really interesting this year because it's sort of the hyper-local versions of all of these issues that we're debating on the national stage. So according to some polls that have come out recently, the priorities for BC voters appear to be mostly in line with housing, homelessness, poverty, and the environment, which is, I don't know, a bit different. Can you tell me a bit about what's going on in BC, you know, what things are bubbling up there and, and maybe some stuff that we're not totally getting out in the rest of the country? I think BC is sort of nationally seen as this like bastion of pipeline resistance. But in fact, according to polls and sort of public opinion, that isn't necessarily the case. I think it depends on which part of the province you're talking about, whether that's urban centers or sort of the northeast area or the interior. When you look at polls right after Ottawa reapproved the pipeline this year, a majority of British Columbians supported Trans Mountain. So either that's a weariness or it's easier to be mad at a Texas company and not Ottawa. But there seems to be an actual sort of acceptance of Trans Mountain if you look at the province as a whole. And I think it's important to remember in the Northeast, it's really resource-based. There's a $40 billion LNG economy there where people are pretty supportive of energy. And in the interior, there's a ton of support for Trans Mountain. We've just seen Justin Trudeau announce that he's going to take the profits from Trans Mountain and use it to plant a you know, billion some odd trees. Um, and on top of that, in his platform, he just uh, indicated that he's looking to figure out new sort of resource revenue sharing arrangements with First Nations. I mean, is that all sort of aimed at sort of buttressing that kind of tacit support that he's gotten for the pipeline? It certainly seems like a way to sort of placate those people who may have been moderately opposed and now moderately support. Is it a good strategy for BC? It may be. We will see. Andrew Shear was in Vancouver just a couple of days ago and actually used his campaign stop on Friday, the day of the climate march, to basically suggest that carbon pricing doesn't work. And he pointed to British Columbia as an example. He said, um, you know, British Columbia's CO2 emissions have actually risen uh, over the time the carbon tax has been in place. Um, is that not bullshit? Yeah, it sure sounds like it. <laughs> yeah, It's a hard thing to understand, basically, a, a policy that essentially allows for increased emissions. It's a very hard thing to wrap your head around. And while they would scrap the carbon tax, um, I don't understand at all the logic that Andrew Scheer doubled down on on Friday. It was absolutely fascinating that he did that in B.C. Because famously, you know, the B.C. carbon tax has has reduced emissions uh, or at least reduced the growth in emissions. But but emissions have continued rising because, you know, B.C. is a pretty industrious province. Um, But, you know, this was his whole sell. I mean, is anyone buying this? Not in B.C., There's a lot of sort of backlash to that. So, I mean, that may be different in some writings up north or in the interior, but it's a hard sell 
I think the the numbers speak for themselves. When it comes to BC specifically, I think we kind of fail to appreciate that there's a whole bunch of local stuff going on. So, I mean, what sort of things are on the conversation locally that maybe just aren't breaking through nationally, which could actually have a huge impact on, on which party comes out on top? There are a few issues that are coming up the root of which I think is actually kind of economic anxiety. But housing and affordability has been a big, big thing, not only in urban centres, but across the province. Another thing is actually jobs. While that's part of the national narrative, we don't often hear about that economic side in BC. But just this week, we saw a logging convoy drive down to Vancouver to protest a whole bunch of job losses and major mill closes. And then, of course, money laundering and rampant speculation. And that's all sort of attached to this idea of housing. You said one thing that I find really interesting that I've been hearing a lot. And it's that, um, yes, affordability is a big thing in the cities, especially in Vancouver, but that it's a problem elsewhere as well. It's freaking people out well outside you know, the downtown core of Vancouver. You know, can you talk to me a bit about that? Because I think um, a lot of the easy narrative have been, oh, it's foreign buyers. We'll get rid of them. Everything will be fine. Only the big city folks are really worried about this anyway. That's exactly it. But the other thing that we're sort of missing is rent and rental policies. Like, while Vancouver may be emblematic of that larger housing affordability, British Columbians in general need rental policies. The vacancy rates are astronomical. So it's not just attached to speculation and money laundering, as we're seeing it across the province in small rural towns as well as cities. We're recording this on Sunday. The Liberal platform literally just came out. And there's really not a whole lot in there in terms of rental affordability. You know, the Liberals used to talk a good game about we're going to build new housing units, we're going to build new affordable units. Um, And this platform is mostly about helping people buy their first home. It doesn't really get at the issue of uh, affordability or poverty all that much. I mean, do you think that's running a risk for them, especially out in BC? I think so. That said, I'm not sure any of the parties have sort of offered a solution that would respond to the Lower Mainland's particular issues. The Liberals definitely didn't address rent. Um, The NDP appears to be the only party that's kind of addressed it. But both the Liberals and Conservatives are offering help at a level that doesn't really touch the issues, particularly here in the Lower Mainland. It's just too expensive. Obviously, the Green Party has done relatively well in BC over the last couple of weeks. If you're to believe the polls, they have a shot at winning maybe upwards of four seats in British Columbia alone. Is there something to that beyond just people's sort of environmental anxiety? There may be. I think that comes back to this ultimate frustration and maybe perhaps a sense of Western alienation. I think we might see that play out in both BC and Alberta. Um, The flip side being uh, it's a real war between the NDP and the Greens in B.C. Like they're trying to get at each other's flanks with good cause. In 2015, the NDP swept the island, but we've seen the Greens really kind of come back and they have to fend them off. 17, I think, of B.C.'s 42 writings went to the Liberals, but a lot of those, the margins of victory were really low. And so when we're starting to talk about this frustration, whether it's over climate or housing, there's a real ability for, I think, those votes to swing. And we've seen Singh in B.C. now for days with a focus on the island. He's announced all sorts of B.C.-specific policies like reducing ferry rates, It appears like that's sort of a direct attack on the Greens and what they're offering, which is ultimately a really strong climate policy. Singh can't really speak to the holes in that. We've talked about the top four parties, but I know you've been following around Maxime Bernier a fair bit, and you've spoken to him a a couple of times. Do you figure he has a chance of breaking through in BC? I have seen evidence that people are jumping on sort of the People's Party. That said, 
can he really pull through in BC? No. And it appears that he sort of knows that. He's really pivoted a lot of his time and spent a lot of time in the prairies in Alberta and Quebec. But he did run his first candidate here, who is now interestingly running in Red Deer, which I think is a real big riding in Alberta. And when she faced Singh in the by-election, she did get 10% of the vote. Will they get a seat in BC? Doubtful. But are they mobilizing their base here? Absolutely. You know, one, one thing, obviously, that is, is super pertinent to Vancouverites is the opioid crisis. You know, the downtown east side has mm-hmm. been incredibly hard hit by the opioid crisis, by the rise of fentanyl. Um, you know, this has come up. I've been asking the leaders about this the last couple of days. Is that something that's filtering through? Like, are, are people really kind of taking into account the party's various positions on the opioid crisis, you know, when they plan to go to the polls? Or is it you know, kind of just a frustration that none of the parties have totally stepped up on that front. I think it's a deep-seated frustration. I think that's why housing is attached to homelessness and poverty, because it's all sort of linked with the opioid crisis and what we're seeing happen, not just in the downtown east side, but across the country. The NDP and the Greens have sort of pledged for some form of decriminalization of drugs. Are people at all excited about that? Or is there sort of weariness knowing that, you know, there's a very slim chance either of those parties are going to form government? It seems like a really deep weariness, to be honest, that that isn't sort of going to come through specifically at a national level, and that it's critically needed. People keep dying. People keep dying. Um, This province has also launched class action suits to sort of combat the opioid crisis. We have our Attorney General EB going after Purdue Pharma, as well as their family in court. And so I think that is a, a great example of sort of this weariness and frustration and the province trying to act on it. But on a federal level, I think you see so much pushback from all of the leaders, even the two we talked earlier about the NDP and Greens, who, yes, it should be exciting. They've mentioned decrim or safe supply, but they also sort of walked back some of their stuff around that. And so this weariness in that almost like it's going to take too long for policy to make a difference. So, you know, you have a Liberal Party that that people seem okay with in British Columbia, generally speaking. Um, You have a a relatively popular NDP. I think Jagmeet Singh probably polls better in BC than he does in most other parts of the country. And you have Elizabeth May, sort of hometown hero, who people are kind of coming around to, and a Conservative Party that always does well in big chunks of British Columbia. Um, I think a lot of these ridings are going to come down to local candidates. You know, do you know or like the person running for the, you know, whatever party in your riding? Are there any that stick out to you as being sort of game changers that could actually sort of, you know, flip a riding that we might not see going one direction or another? I mean, the Burnaby North riding alone has had a lot of federal attention. That's the riding where the pipeline ends. We've seen sort of veteran NDP Sven Robinson, this sort of political pseudo hero um, who's going to try to wrench the seat from the liberal Terry Beach. But the Green Party is also trotting out their candidate who is really interesting. She is a astrophysicist and also their science and innovation critic. So I think that particular riding will be interesting. But then we also have in Vancouver Kingsway sort of a local celebrity and former news anchor Tamara Taggart, who's running for the Liberals. And we saw Trudeau begin his campaign there with her. And we've seen him land in that riding a few times. So I think that is a high profile candidate. And she's trying to wrench a seat from Don Davies, who's held it for quite some time. And then, of course, we have Vancouver Granville with Jody Wilson-Raybould. Right. That's a real test. I think right there, and it is a really tight riding. So there's a split. Yeah. What do, going what do you think there. happens there? What do you think? I mean, do you think that Jody Wilson-Raybould manages to keep the seat? And like I was in that riding in in June, I think, and I, I asked a couple people, and they didn't even seem to realize that Jody Wilson-Raybould represented that riding. Yeah, 
I've noticed public opinion really shift. And so I'm very curious if she can keep that seat. That said, they do say it's all about boots on the ground. And she has been door knocking for months now. Yeah, and both her and, and Jane Philbot have been trying to kind of fundraise together. And they both said that they just reached their, their fundraising goal, which yep. is I, I, pretty impressive. Yep, it is. I think that riding is going to be a really interesting test sort of our of our parliamentary system. <laughs> Looking at all this, I mean, is there one party you can kind of see like kind of sneaking under the radar a bit? Or is this going to be just a four-way split? Honestly, I think the NDP seems to be fighting for their life in BC. And I think there's a chance for the NDP to either sort of break through or sort of rein back. And I think the most interesting fight is sort of this third place fight, particularly in BC. Melanie, thanks so much. I appreciate this. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. That's it for this week. You can let us know what you think by emailing us at oppo at candlelandshow.com or finding us on Twitter and Facebook at oppocast. You can check out Melanie Green's work in Star Metro Vancouver and find Drew Brown on The Independent. If you want to follow Melanie Green on Twitter, she is at MDG Media, MDG Media, and Drew Brown is at Drewfinland. That's D-R-E-W, Foundland. This episode was produced by Laura Howells. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton, and the theme music was by Nathan Burley. I have the last word this week, and that word is birthday. Because, as we're recording this, it's Drew Brown's birthday. So everybody at home, wish Drew Brown a happy birthday. 